Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. My first aeroplane. Uh, uh, it has a subtitle, "A Lauda Magna," uh, by H. G. Wells, and this was first published in the Strand in January 1910. It is actually uh, the first of a two-part st- series starring this character, Mr. Biggs. Uh, Mr. Betts. Betts. Where did I get Biggs? Mr. Betts. Um, uh, and he alludes to the uh, second adventure in the first adventure. And in the second adventure, he alludes to the first adventure. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's delightful, this story. <laughs> it's very it silly and delightful. I will, I will uh, point out um, to the people who are reading it from a later edition. Uh, we've got the Strand original, beautiful illustrated edition in color for the most part. The illustrations. Yes. Um, that uh, in the first uh, column, second paragraph, I'm just going to read up to that point. Um, there's a, f- a fact that I think is interesting. My first airplane. What vivid memories of youth that recalls far back it was in the spring of 1912 that I acquired a Lauda Magna. Uh, this story is published in 1910. It's uh, set far back in the spring of 1912. Uh, technically makes it set in the future. And um, I don't think that that's super important for the story, but uh, it is about the technology that was even happening at the time of publication, 1910. And it's right in the title, Aeroplane. It's not spelled airplane like we spell it today. It's Aeroplane. So uh, most people would have probably picked up this story uh, through the country of the blind if they'd even heard of it at all. It is an ab- incredibly obscure and unremembered story I think, for I an H.G. Wells story. The Country of the Blind is itself a story. You mean a collection that has... The Country of the, the Blind, of the and, blind other and other stories. The, indeed, which is 1926. So right. by the time you read it in, in uh, that, that book, 1912 has come and gone, but readers in the Strand in January 1910 would have got it in late 1909. The airplanes basically only invented in 1903... So this is a massively new technology, and this story is all about that. Yes. So that, that's the only point I wanted to make. Oh, well, I, I thought you were going to read the whole first paragraph. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll let you do that. Okay. Well, um, I think that it is, uh, it is significant that it's set in the future um, because, well, The story is a first-person narrative by the fellow who says, My first aeroplane, what vivid memories of youth that recalls, with exclamation points Mm -hmm. and a swagger. Um, It turns out to be a character study uh, of the narrator, who is utterly unaware (laughs) of his own realities, of the kind of person he really is. And in the course of talking about how the world looks to him and how he looks to himself and how his role as an aviator seems. We also wind up getting, it seems incidentally, all sorts of information that 
allows us to understand something about the petty bourgeois life mm. of rural England. And so this turns out to be, I think, a marvelous retrospective critique of the society that produces people like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he becomes the prime example. In that sense, if we realize that this is a future history, it is much like other science fiction future histories that is nominally set in the future so that what we see in the future can give us a deeper understanding of what's going on now. And uh, indeed, Wells does write such things um, as the food of the gods, for example, Mm -hmm. is set in the future and cast back socially about what's going on now. This is a very early example of that. And it's not pushing future history very much at all. In fact, as you say, if you read it in a 1920s collection of Wells, you might even miss that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, as always with Wells, there's a lot that you don't want to miss. Absolutely. So, the, the short of the story is that the fellow lusts after an airplane. It's a new technology. He decides to get an airplane. He overcomes some technical difficulties having to do with money and production and gets his airplane. Um, he then uh, doesn't want to wait to bother having <laughs> flying lessons because all the good flying instructors are engaged for a long period of time um, since there's such a craze for airplanes but not in the little town he lives in so he's just going to do it anyway how hard could it be and he goes and he flies his airplane and in the course of that flight he manages to wreak havoc on his town and his way of describing what he does <laughs> is enormously, enormously funny. Um, and then at the end, we get his reflection, presumably as an adult, about what all of this meant. Uh, it, and it all comes together as a terrific, terrific social um, critique. I would point out that at the beginning, we have that 1912 reference for a story that was published in 1910. And at the end... Um, When, because he needs to leave the country, uh, since everybody is after him for damages for all that he's done, um, he decides that uh, I simply had to go away from Minton Chester to Italy and leave my poor mother to manage them, that is the people who are after them, in her own solid, undemonstrative way, which she did, I must admit, like a brick. Now, <laughs> at this point, since it's toward the end of the story, we know that, in fact, his mother has been paying everything for him. He's mm-hmm. a mama's boy. He who sure thinks is. of himself. Right. Um, but he left it to mom to take care of it. And then he says, they didn't get much out of her anyway, but she had to break up our little house at Mintonchester and join me in Arosa in spite of her disdain, her dislike of Italian cooking. She found me already a bit of a celebrity because I had made a record, so it seemed, of falling down three separate crevasses on three successive days. But that's another story altogether. And then we have the final paragraph, which I won't read now. What I want to point out about this is not only his perverse understanding of his relationship with his mother, but Arosa is not in Italy. It's in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. 
just as 1912 cannot be way back when you publish something in 1910. <laughs> so there is a consistent front and back misuse of what facts are checkable. This future history actually is coming from the mouth of someone who is factually unreliable mm -hmm. as well as characterologically unreliable. So you see why I jumped ahead. To that. Absolutely. I, I will point out that, that the, the Italian set story uh, set in the Alps is um, it's called Little Mother Up the Mortarburg or Murderburg. Um, and that came out in April 1910, so uh, four months later in the same magazine. Uh, same kind of wonderful illustrations, and it is another adventure of this completely stupid doofus. Mr. <laughs> Betts. And, and his, his mother, who is simultaneously um, endearing in her qualities, what few of them we see here, she, she's worried about his safety, he lies to her, says, oh, I've had lessons. Um, yes. she, he, she, she says, um, he says, I, I, I must have an airplane or I have to move away, mother. <laughs> and so she right. says, well, if you must. And then he buys it, puts it in the garden, has the men put it together. Um, now I myself took flying lessons and, uh, it, I kind of had the attitude that this guy had, <laughs> which is why I am not a, a regular pilot. Um, to be a regular pilot, you have to be extremely concerned about safety a lot of the time. Because once you're up in the air, um, you... It's a long way down. It's a long way down, and you need to be constantly thinking about where you will land when the engine fails, when some sort of problem happens. Like, you need to be having this on your mind all the time. And even before you get in the air... You have to do something very important. You walk around the aircraft, look for cracks in the wings, look look to see that somebody didn't come in and damage the the aircraft by throwing a baseball at it. Uh, you have to you have to like physically inspect every inch of the aircraft. He doesn't do that in this story. He doesn't even have any involvement in the putting of it together. He supervises by smoking and wearing the costume, and while they're building it. Uh, something you left out of the Precy, which I think is very funny and very important, is he does a preview of where he's going to fly around the town, and he w walks around wearing his aviator's costume, with children following behind him, saying, when are you going to fly? Don't fly until you get out of school. We get out of school. And then he goes to all the places that he subsequently destroys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he spends time showing off and, and sh showing what a impressive, uh, daring pilot he is. Um, this story is wonderfully written. It is very cartoon-like, but it makes me think even more of like the style of British humor, like Blackadder, if you know that. Uh, it's kind of like Monty Python, but more long sketch rather than short sketch, where you've got these absolutely doofusy upper class twits or toffs, and and then some servant who actually knows what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I guess Jeeves and Wooster is kind of that sort of same story. Um, he is uh, Wells is is making great fun of something that I think he he himself was fascinated by um he was himself a bicyclist and here we get motor bicycles right aka motorcycles um we get uh aircraft we get c motor cars this guy is an enthusiast he, he is unfortunately 
completely dim-witted and unaware of the horrible damage that he's inflicting on everybody. But the damage is so humorous in the story. I mean, the worst thing that happens is, I guess, some pigs are killed. And a cow. And a cow. Um, the vicar almost has his head taken off, but he has such a, you know, a strong spine. <laughs> right. <laughs> it doesn't come off. Um, and then, uh, I mean, maybe we need to go over a little bit more of, uh, the, the details. And then I think we should do some readings to give a sense. I, I, I'd like to start by reading the first paragraph, uh, the, 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 the first column. Mm-hmm. Um, because, All that you say is true, and yet, as is so often the case with Wells, what may look like a cartoon, what at least may look like something drawn in broad, bold strokes, on closer examination turns out to have lots of nuance. This fellow is not just dim-witted. As you said, um, an aviator needs to be alert. He needs to walk around his craft. He needs to visually inspect it. He needs to make sure that there is nothing cracked or wrong. Now, in fact, our fellow um, creates most of the damage that he does Mm -hmm. because when he takes off, there there are two metal posts, which had previously been holding up a badminton net, uh, that are tied by a rope to either of the wings the fellow he had said, you go and watch it and keep guard over it at night, had attached guy ropes to it so that it wouldn't be lifted off the ground. It couldn't be moved. Mm-hmm. And our pilot is so dim-witted that he doesn't notice it. And he continues to blame the guard for having created this problem mm-hmm. when, in fact, it was his responsibility. Why do I mention that now? Because, as you'll see... There are wonderful, wonderful things hidden even in that first uh, column. My first airplane. What vivid memories of youth that recalls. Now, if we know that it's a a future history, it's not actually youth at all. Mm -hmm. It's daydreaming. Far back it was in the spring of 1912 that I acquired Alauda Magna, the Great Lark. For so I christened her, and I would, and I will. I'll stop that sentence in the middle. Um, Alauda magna, in fact, is Latin for a great lark. Mm-hmm. But a lark is a slang expression for a terrific prank, mm-hmm. or right. So an adventure, and, a source of amusement, right? Exactly. So this fellow has gone out and acquired the great lark, Mm -hmm. which what we're going to see now, all of this path of destruction is his idea of a great lark. He doesn't care that other people are hurt, Mm -hmm. endangered, impoverished. For so I christened her, and I was then a slender young man of four and twenty with hair, beautiful blonde hair, all over my adventurous (laughs) young head. I was a dashing young fellow enough in spite of of the slight visual defect that obliged me to wear spectacles on my prominent aquiline, but by no means shapeless nose, the typical flyer's nose. So right away, it's like the third sentence of the story. We know that he has a visual defect. Mm -hmm. He calls it slight, but given how enormous 
is his opinion of himself, I'm guessing that that slight defect is enough to make it so that he couldn't have seen the damn guy wires, mm-hmm. guy ropes, if he'd wanted to. Mm-hmm. The guy is blind, and that's confirmed by having him fall down a crevasse three days in a row when he moves to Arosa. All right, so um, I was a good runner and swimmer, a vegetarian as ever, an all-wooler, and an ardent advocate of the extremist views in every direction about everything, (laughs) which, of course, is logically impossible, (laughs) right? Because they will oppose each other. Precious little in the way of a movement got started that I wasn't in it. I owned two motorcycles, motor bicycles. I'm guessing one is to go to the right wing and one is to go to the (laughs) left wing. Um, I owned two motor bicycles and an enlarged photograph of me at that remote date in leather skullcap, goggles, and gauntlets, still adorns my study fireplace. In other words, he hasn't outgrown his puerile fantasies at all. Mm -hmm. I was also a great flyer of war kites and a voluntary scoutmaster of high repute. That that crowd that is trailing him through Mm -hmm. town that you mentioned, Jesse, they're all boys. Mm Mm-hmm. He's so pleased to have boys follow him. In fact, later in the story, after he begins creating damage and he's flying around over the village, he's got a whole lot of older people following him. (laughs) They're not adulating. They are (laughs) screaming for revenge. They've got uh, got pitchforks, (laughs) and he knows what they're going to use them for. That's right. From the first beginnings of the boom in flying, therefore... I was naturally eager for the fray. So that, you know, that gives us a sense of who this fellow is. Mm -hmm. I I would like to to read a chunk out of the middle because we can see how much Mm -hmm. um, Wells gets in here. I'm on page 58, uh, about starting about halfway down the first column. Okay. I got a Lauda Magna at last at a little place in, oh, I should preface this he can't buy it he's been going through the catalogs Mm -hmm. what do i want you know what kind of plane how do i want it equipped and so on it turns out he can't get one because all of the companies that make airplanes are back ordered Mm -hmm. oh but he said so he can't they can't undertake it the last answer comes from a company that they can't undertake to deliver before the beginning of april not me he says I got a Lauda Magna at last at a little place in Blackfriars Road. She was on. She was an order thrown on the firm's hands at the eleventh hour by the death of the purchaser through another maker. Okay, I'll stop there for a minute. <laughs> Let this that is sink so in. Typical. Yep. Right. This guy at the end. He tells us how lucky he was. Everything. He's lucky because he's got a wealthy mother and other people die. Mm. Right. That's how he succeeds, by the bad fortune of others. And Uh, I ran my modest bank account into an overdraft to get her. Wow, wasn't he brave? Mm. To this day, I won't confess the price I paid for her. Poor little mumsy. (laughs) He doesn't care about overdraft. His Mm -hmm. mother is paying Mm -hmm. it. Within a week, she, that is the plane, was in my mother's paddock, being put together after transport by a couple of not-too-intelligent mechanics. The joy... He's looking down, of course, on people who actually can do real work. Mm -hmm. 
the joy of it, and a sort of adventurous tremulousness. I had had no lessons. All the qualified teachers were booked up at stupendous fees for months ahead, but it wasn't in my quality to stick at a thing like that. I couldn't have endured three days' delay. I assured my mother I had had lessons for her peace of mind. It is a poor son who will not tell a lie to keep his parent happy. Mm. My God, how this fellow twists things. Yep. And in the next column, we're told a few very interesting things. Now, given what we know about Wells and the enormous depth of his knowledge uh, about the Bible and so on, um, we have this, a Lauda Magna, and then he describes her. She was a monoplane and, roughly speaking, a Blériot, um, and she had the dearest, neatest seven-cylinder, 40-horsepower GKC engine with its GBS flywheel that you can possibly imagine. Now, to somebody reading this in the 21st century, we may think, ah, well, we're supposed to know what all these things are. Well, Blériot was an early aviator, a Mm -hmm. pioneering aviator. But what you might want to notice is, well, okay, a seven-cylinder engine. What's a seven-cylinder engine? Well, if, in fact, you arrange those seven cylinders so that they're all pointing toward the center, it's a circular engine, Mm. then having seven cylinders is, in fact, something that was quite usual to be done with airplanes because by firing them in the right sequence, you never had the engine moving off to one side and the other, Mm -hmm. having circular, right? So that was a good kind of engine. But notice that it's 40 horsepower. Mm -hmm. So, and with the GKC engine. Well, GKC is a well-known set of initials in 1910. It's G.K. Chesterton, Mm -hmm. a wildly popular writer who is a confirmed Catholic, and his most famous creation is Father Brown, a priest who solves mysteries. Now, in the world of G.K. Chesterton, where there really is a God and things really are uh, intended to fit into a moral universe, in that biblical world cast into our modern times, the seven days of creation become the seven cylinders and the 40 days <laughs> in the wilderness or the 40 days of the, uh, the ark become the 40 horsepower engine and what keeps it running what you know what governs this and makes sure that it doesn't go too far one way or the other it's a gbs flywheel Mm -hmm. george bernard shaw (laughs) who i think it was 1903 uh had man and superman the central act of which uh is sometimes presented all by itself don juan in hell now what we have here then is a story that's playing on the philosophical issues of the day. And I would point out to you that at this point, H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw are the two most prominent members of the Fabian Society. So he's he's poking fun at, at what's going on in his own world, a world in which people are overprivileged, that uh, they can create all the damage they want because mummy will take care of it. Mm-hmm. And as he said... As he looks down, at his bet says, as he looks down at the people running around, he says, well, they can't expect me to have worried about getting them out of the way. After all, I was on a higher plane. So uh-huh. Wells, right, Wells, Wells is criticizing uh, Chesterton, and he's taking the view, at this point he still shares it, of George Bernard Shaw. 
He's got a plane, an aeroplane, that tries to combine them both. And yet, it's seven cylinders and 40 horsepower. Wells is getting us to think there is a, a, a world of the spirit, of morals, that should be out there. And this fellow, who is so adorable, <laughs> is actually a god darn menace. Yes, he is a menace. Um, he, I, I, I want to point out how, you, you know, you're pointing out his blindness. Um, uh, I want to point out all the names that are telling us how to feel here. First of all, there's the lark itself, right? So yes. we, we should be starting to be a little suspicious because of that. But then uh, we find out his name is eventually Mr. Betts. Um, and then there's a, uh, there's a person named Snape, our trusted gardener. Um, and we engage an elderly unemployed named Snorticomb, <laughs> which right. these are not very realistic names. The butcher, who he eventually, um, kills the pigs of, um, is not, uh, you know, Mr. Butcher. It's Cheese Man. <laughs> yeah. And, um, we actually meet a person named Flightman, right? It's yep. almost like everybody has, in his view, everybody has a name, but it doesn't really matter what they are. It's just, it's, it's neither here nor there, right? So the fact that he has not had flying lessons, that he, um, he, he goes on in this story, uh, about his vegetarianism. <laughs> in, uh, the subsequent story, uh, Little Mother Up the Mortarberg, he expresses the importance of him being a vegetarian to everyone he meets <laughs> in Italy, right? Um, this is a satire. Why do you say in Italy? In, uh, in well, up the Mordorbarg. No, no, but why do you say he expresses it to everyone he meets in Italy? I, I ask that, Jesse, because I am a vegetarian, mm -hmm. and I must say that Italy is the easiest place for me to eat really, really well that I've ever been. Well, Italian pasta. food is superb, mm -hmm. and, and they, they have, don't need meat to make it superb. Absolutely. But the people he's talking to are all other people like him. They're all highfalutin guests from other countries. So the fact that he doesn't know what country he's in, the fact <laughs> that he doesn't, uh, that he thinks everybody needs to be lectured about becoming a vegetarian like him because he's a wonderful runner and a wonderful swimmer, and he's a pilot, don't you know? Um, everything about this guy is, is so narrowly focused on his own image of himself. That's why he has a massively blown up photo of himself wearing these gauntlets and hel uh, leather cap and goggles on top of one of his two motor bicycles, right? He is a hilarious caricature. And the, this whole story is a satire of a class of people. Um, I've talked about a magazine called The Sketch. Um, the Sketch is a, a contemporary of The Strand. The Strand is very well known for it being the uh, home of the Sherlock Holmes stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, and those were incredibly popular with the middle classes, the people who were just general Englanders, right? The people throughout Britain, in fact, who just loved Sherlock Holmes. He was incredibly popular. But that magazine was aimed at the middle class, uh, an upwardly mobile class, perhaps, but at the middle class. 
Whereas the sketch is entirely aimed at the very upper crust people, exactly like Mr. Betts. And in reading those issues from 1910 and 1911 and 1906, you see a kind of incredibly hilarious expression of exactly what Wells is doing here. So I've got um, a example. The first Duchess to fly. Um, the whole article is just a picture of her <laughs> in an air aircraft being piloted around by somebody. And then a, a, a tiny little caption. There's almost no reading necessary for this magazine, this sketch. All, any story that it has will be at maximum one page long. And the rest is photographs. And then the rest, uh, the rest that isn't actually content is advertisements for, uh, tires, for mechanics, for, uh, motor vehicles and aircraft these are to the rich people's toys and mm -hmm. here is our local rich man his mother making making him a rich man um who gets his toy proceeds to destroy the the neighborhood with it and then when when she is asked to pay for it because oh he's insolvent he he owns no assets um he convinces her to not pay the full fee and, in fact, flee the country. <laughs> so yes. this is a standard sort of problem. You've got you've got a uh, a rich dilettante uh, unaware, and this is a skewering of those people, but it is also a reality that people are noticing. Right? These the the this new technology, the motor cars, the motorcycles, the uh, I was going to say helicopters. We're not there yet. Uh, the aircraft are all unregulated. So you didn't have to have a license to have any of these things. You just had to have the money. And when you have this strange technology that is, you know, disrupting a lifestyle of everyone else, there is bound to be ridiculousness. And, and that's what this is. It, I think it's very notable that no humans die. Um, had a human died in here, you couldn't make this story as light as it is. Even the pigs, when they're killed, in his view, it's humorous, right? Or at least the way we read it through his eyes, it, it is a humorous incident. As he says, pigs, after all, were bred to die. Right, exactly. This coming from a vegetarian, right? So it's, he's not doing it for ethical purposes here. He's doing it because it's fashionable. <laughs> right. At, at this point, I think um, I'd like to take a look at that very last paragraph. Mm -hmm. right, so he's gone off to, to to what he calls Italy. He's fallen into the three crevasses, um, the father, the son and the holy crevasse, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and then. But that's another story from start to finish. I reckon that first airplane cost my mother. He doesn't worry about what it cost the town, cost my mother over 900 pounds. If I hadn't put my foot down and she had stuck to her original intention of paying all the damage, it would have cost her 3000 But it was worth it. It was not his money. It was worth it. I wish I could live it all over again. And many an old codger like me sits at home now and deplores those happy, vanished, adventurous times when any lad of spirit and you're right, Jesse, it really means of money, mm -hmm. was free to fly and go anywhere and smash anything 
and discuss the question afterwards of just what the damages amounted to and what his legal liability might be. And that's the end. Mm -hmm. The story begins with my first airplane, but it ends with, huh, I get to think about what my legal liability is. He gets to think about it because he's not subject to it. Mm -hmm. This story is, uh, it opens us up into uh, a realm of critique that really makes us ask, to pick up the word you used, are we better off having better toys or do we need better people? Mm. Because let's face it, if many old codgers are like this guy, he hasn't grown up at all. No. Right. In fact, That's why, after uh, after uh, after he crashes the the airplane, he gets gets them to tow to take it back to his his home, and they have to go through a narrow thing. And he sits in the aircraft as if he was flying, while they're taking it back to his. You know, they're dragging it back to his house, or his mother's house, and then he proceeds to fly it again because it's not that damaged, and continues the horror. <laughs> He learned nothing. Nothing. So, because he is going to play this same self-serving record over and over again, and because Wells knows that and gives us yet another story, as you mentioned, about this fellow, clearly this type of individual set in this kind of a society means that there is always more to say thanks very much for listening and remember you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep if you enjoyed this podcast consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio audio